On the pod this week, Arsenal practically hand the title to Man City. No thanks to the B word. No, not bottle. Brighton, the Seagulls storm to a 3-0 win at the Emirates to show just why they're deserving of European football next season. Tottenham, however, seem about as anti-Europe as a Brexiteer. Rivals Aston Villa beat them 2-1 as they get their passports ready for a European adventure. Or do they? So many questions still remain. At the bottom, the Saints fall from Premier League heaven is confirmed as Southampton are relegated after 11 years in the top flight. And in the women's game, Chelsea lift the FA Cup again, dispatching plucky Man United in front of a record crowd at Wembley. The shape of things to come in the WSL? Who knows? This is the Football Diary Podcast. Hey, how's it going, guys? Welcome back to the pod. It's getting to that time of the season, isn't it, where it's the final stretch. And there's still plenty to be decided, but plenty feels like it has been decided this weekend, I think. And nowhere more so than at the top of the league, where accusations of bottling the title race are rife, I think, amongst Arsenal fans as much as anything. But the way their season's panned out, they'd have taken that at the start, wouldn't they, Miles? They lost 3-0 to Brighton, and I think the way they've unravelled in the last few weeks makes it all that more disappointing, doesn't it? But how do you see Arsenal's season at this point? I mean, it's difficult to say with so much disappointment still fresh, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. They'll be they'll be gutted. I think they were gutted before this game. This isn't the one that, that lost them the title, really. I think the game at the Etihad probably buried them a little bit then. It's a really frustrating run from Arsenal. I think they picked up nine points out of a possible 21 in their last seven, which is it's not the form that we got used to. But I wonder if that's kind of the limitations of this squad at a late stage in a season after a really intense push just showing. Obviously, the injuries to Saliba, Zinchenko being out of this game, Jesus was out, obviously out for quite a while as well. I think we just have started to see where the gaps are with a squad like this comparative to Man City's. And this game really seemed evidence of it because Brighton, my word, they were superb. Arsenal had absolutely no answer to it really and I don't know I feel like you have to take it on the value of what it's been as a season they've competed with Man City right at the top of the league which no one would have expected at the start of the year finishing second is a phenomenal achievement for them the term bottling it I find so (laughs) weird (laughs) to be honest in in this context because I don't really know we never expected Arsenal to win it so can you bottle something that was never yours in the first place from the position they're in though they should be doing better. That's the only way to put it, isn't it? I think as a neutral, that's the the disappointing thing is that we've seen a contest before our eyes for so long. And obviously you were saying that to beat City to a Premier League title, you've got to be near perfect. I mean, look at Liverpool that that season where they clocked more than 100 points and still didn't win the league. And, you know, they'll know better than anyone how much it takes to actually do that. So Arsenal were close to being perfect for a while and it felt Mm. like the way they were playing, they were going to play like that for, for indefinitely, really. Saliba's injuries obviously harm them massively. I think that's probably the biggest blow they've had. But it wasn't just about Saliba missing in this game against Brighton, was it? For as good as Brighton were, Arsenal made some really fundamental errors. And you said the Man City game. I look at the Southampton game as well and West Ham. And, you know, the way they kind of lost points in those games was more indicative, I think, of how not just weak their squad is, but also how, dare I say, weak temperamentally they are as well. Mm. I think in this game in particular, we saw their weakness in midfield more than anything. Now, obviously, Granite Jack has had a phenomenal season in many ways going forward, but he really struggled to get into this game and dictate any play. Jorginho, who had been so phenomenal against Newcastle, barely got on the ball. And when he did, it seemed quite lacklustre, didn't really do anything. And again, at 1-0, I'm pretty sure it was at 1-0, Odegaard gets taken off again. Mm. And it just seems odd that Arsenal just really didn't know how to get a foothold in this game. It seemed like the right game for Thomas Partey and it was clear after the first sort of an hour, really. They were desperate for him when he came on and that didn't even make much of a difference. It's so funny when you consider that Brighton's midfield, we know how how fantastic they've been all year. Arsenal were obviously heavily linked with Moise Casado and they didn't even need him in midfield in this game. He slotted in at right back and the midfield three that stepped in instead were just... It was unbelievable how much they seemed to just dictate the game. Billy Gilmore, for example, who really struggled to get into the team at the start of the season, he was fantastic while he was on the pitch. And McAllister, again, showed why he's probably getting a move in the summer. It's it's a shame that Arsenal don't have that kind of 
energy at this stage of the season that Brighton seemed to have. I think that yeah. was another thing that it maybe came down to. It's yeah, it's so frustrating. But we've been saying it for the last few weeks. Like I say, last seven games really, Arsenal have got, have got two wins, three draws. That's not what you need at a stage when Man City are going to win eleven in a row. And and it did just seem like energy was the thing that they lacked. Martinelli going off early doesn't help. Saka hasn't really been in the same sort of form that we came to expect of him earlier in the season. So, yeah, it's it's a frustrating one for Arsenal. I think they probably should have done better from where they were, but you can see how it's kind of gone wrong, to say, even though they're going to finish second, which is phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, it's all but handed the title to Man City, hasn't it? I think yeah. they're just that one win away now. Um, and Arsenal really don't look like they're in enough form to kind of even try and keep the pressure on, do they? And that was the, the question mark, whether they, even though they dropped points and they were four points away or something like that, could they still keep winning? Could they still yeah. remain perfect to keep that pressure on? And it's such a shame it hasn't gone to the final day of the season at the very least. So mm. that's a neutral fan talking. But I think when the dust has settled, Arsenal will probably reflect on the season and say, look, it's great progress from Mikel Arteta. They yeah. finished in a very good position, um, totally beyond their expectations. So yeah. well done in many ways. It's hard to say right now, but I'm sure they'll reflect on a, on a season that's that's been really fruitful for them in so much, so many different aspects as well. Um, Brighton, on the other hand, as well, they are continuing to fly, aren't they? You yeah. touched on how impressive they were in this game. 3-0 did not flatter them either at all. No. Um, and it, it looks like the team's going from strength to strength. And we've kind of lauded them with superlatives this season. But they're in that European conversation very much so now. They've got a game in hand on Liverpool, two games on Villa and Spurs, who we'll talk about in a moment. So what are their hopes now? And I know as a Villa fan, you'll be thinking damn it, they should have lost this game to keep Villa's hopes alive of finishing higher. But they truly deserve to be exactly where they are, don't they? Yeah, it's it's hard to remain neutral on this. I'll try to. It is really frustrating as a Villa fan when I looked at the table and we were above Brighton. And even though they got three games in hand, I think those three games were Arsenal, Newcastle and City. Mm. And you could see them potentially getting no points from that. And then they've gone and beaten Arsenal at the Emirates, which is just, it's a phenomenal achievement. And like you say, it's not a flattering result. This is a side that, while we were recording our last podcast, they were in the middle of losing 5-1 to Everton. Yeah. And then they turned up to this game, clearly with a point to prove. They're such a funny team, Brighton. But that squad should be unpredictable. There's a lot of players there that haven't got a great deal of Premier League experience. They're unknown to a lot of people in, in the footballing world. And yet they continue to make a name for themselves. And they find themselves in the European places, rightfully so. They're a better team than Tottenham. They've been more consistent than Villa across their whole season. And mm-hmm. I think they're probably more entertaining than Liverpool. So they they should be within that conversation. They've still got some really tricky games. Like I say, they've still got Newcastle and City. They go to Villa Park on the last day of the season as well, which could be absolutely incredible. It could be a, a straight shootout between the two of us, which I'm not sure my nerves can handle, but <laughs> it's the best that we can hope for at the moment, I suppose. Yeah, it was it was a brilliant performance. There wasn't a player that let them down. I thought they they all looked fantastic in this game. A particular mention again for that midfield because it just yeah. I wonder how many teams in the Premier League right now can say they've got better options in midfield than Brighton. And that that's such a phenomenal statement to be able to say. It it was it was just brilliant from them. Well, Roberto De Zerbi was pretty bullish after the game in terms of what their prospects still are for this season. Um, he said Europa League's not enough as well. I think he's looking, the top four's realistic. They've got to play Newcastle, yeah. um, which would be a blockbuster game that I can definitely see them taking control of, you know, in such good form. You wouldn't put anything past them. De Zerbi himself has to be a contender for manager of the season as well, alongside, yeah. obviously, your man Unai Emery, um, who deserves a shout too. But um, Brighton outperforming, Everything we expected of them once Graham Potter was taken off them as well. And we knew they were a comfortable team, but they've been elevated so much since he arrived, haven't they? Yeah, and I'm just interested to see where he can take them next year. This will be his first full summer, and it's inevitable that he's going to lose some key players. He kind of said it himself, didn't he, after the game, that he expects McAllister to go. Caicedo could still go, obviously. He's confident on Matoma staying, which is a great one for them. But you kind of trust this Brighton side to just regenerate, basically. And CISO's already come in and he looks fantastic. Buenanote's come in as well, a player that, again, 
had any of us ever heard of, let's be honest. And he just seems to have fitted straight into that team. Gilmore yeah. started to come into the side already and maybe he's the perfect Caicedo or McAllister replacement already at the club. Uh, they've signed James Milner as well, which is a weird one. But yeah, I don't know. It's The Zerbys uh, definitely outshone what anyone would have expected of him at this stage. We already knew that he was a great manager and he's had some, some pretty successful spells in the past, particularly at Sassuolo. But did anyone expect Brighton to be where they are now, realistically? Yeah. I think okay. I think it's just it's a sign of a team and a club that have got a clear development strategy, clear plan, and they're fighting against some other teams for European places that don't have that. So they they should come out above Spurs, let's be honest. They deserve <laughs> it. I don't know. It's it's a great season for Brighton, whatever happens. Even if yeah. somehow they, they just miss out and finish eighth, their fans will be so gutted, but and another one that could reflect back and go, what an amazing season. I get the yeah. feeling that they'll be left feeling quite happy at the end of the season, though. Yeah, I think, well, you talked about the pretty much definite departures that they've got incoming, but it's good that they can actually think about the money they're going to get from those transfers yeah. and probably start planning ahead now. And that's just the Brighton model, isn't it? And I think it's incredible to think that Deserby has only been there as long as he has. Whether he remain at the club beyond next season is anyone's guess, but I honestly think he's in a place where he's happy now because his talent's being recognised on a stage and a platform um, that is shown globally. And I think Unai Emery is in the same position with, mm. with Villa as well. I think he has struggled to find a club that fits him. And Villa mm. is that club now, which we'll move on to now. Um, they beat Tottenham 2-1. Um, I mean, it shouldn't have been 2-1, really. It should have been more than, than the two for Villa and shouldn't have been one for, for Tottenham, arguably. But what a statement result in their pursuit of European football. And um, I think a real sign of where both clubs are. There are identical records in the Premier League, with goal difference being the exception. But they've not had identical seasons by any stretch, have they? No, it's so funny because we said for ages that Spurs were almost in like a make-believe league position. That Every time you looked at the table, you expected to see Spurs where Chelsea are and actually they were fourth. So it's about time that they kind of dropped after the season that they've had. And I was I was just overwhelmed by how good Villa were at times in this game. There was definitely a spell around the hour mark where Spurs started knocking on the door a little bit more. But Villa just seemed to know how to handle it so well. And it was as simple as playing a high defensive line. Like Spurs just kept falling for an offside trap. It was ridiculous. If if my club spent £60 million on a player like Richarlison, mm. just to watch him miss time runs consistently all game, give the ball away, fall over, I'd be absolutely livid at the lack of strategy that the club seemed to have. And and that was Spurs' afternoon in a nutshell. It seemed that every single time they had an opportunity to create some sort of opening, one of the attacking players, either Son or Richarlison mostly, just straight offside. It was so lazy. It was, yeah. it was too easy for Villa to defend for the majority of the game. And that made a huge difference. But the way that Villa took the game to Spurs, particularly in that first half... It shows the difference in how these teams have been coached this season massively. Now, we praised Antonio Conte for ages on the podcast as a world-class manager, just at maybe the wrong club. And then since he's gone, we've seen no improvement. Definitely not. And I don't really know what Spurs expected. Villa are a team that are well-organised, well-drilled. They've got a plan. They've got uh, a system that they want to fit into. And Spurs just seem to walk around them. They didn't have a clue how to manage it. And particularly... In Villa's midfield, it, it it was so good, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, I think was it John McGinn got mad of the match for it, but you could oh, have picked any one of maybe a handful of players that were a sort of a clear yeah. eight or nine out of ten. And I think the way Villa have been playing at their best under Emery, most of the team have been playing seven or eight out of tens, haven't they? And yeah. that's incredible to think that the the team and the squad is essentially the same as Steven Gerrard had. But coaching is the key. And how many clubs yeah. have, have been saying that this season? Once the right coach is in place, the team just transforms without any real money being spent. Yeah, and it's really interesting because John McGinn in this game in particular played two different roles as well. Mm. He started the game alongside Douglas Louise, kind of in the, that middle of the park, almost double pivot sort of role. And yeah. when Kamara came on, he had the opportunity to move forward again into a position where he's looked more successful this season. He was just everywhere in this game. Spurs' midfield we know is quite weak and Hoiberg's had a poor season. Mm. Skip is nowhere near the standard that they need him to be at. And McGinn just bossed them both. But I want to give him a massive shout out to Douglas Louise. Oh, yeah. I think the season he has had is phenomenal. 
obviously he had that late move to Arsenal breakthrough on, I think it was deadline day at the was, transfer yeah. window. Then that didn't happen. And Arsenal this season have gone on to compete for the title. So he might feel quite aggrieved by that. Then he had that spell under Gerrard where he, he couldn't really get into the team, which always seemed bizarre to any Villa fan because he, he's a phenomenal player. I know personally he's had a couple of troubles this season. Obviously he had a well-documented relationship with Alicia Lehman that, that, that broke down earlier in the season, which is a, a shame for both of them on a personal level. So it'd be really easy for Douglas Luiz to have almost checked out at Aston Villa. And actually he's probably been our player of the season and yeah. would should rightfully be within a shout of the team of the season in the Premier League. I think he's been absolutely outstanding. His free kick was absolute class. And that's something that Luis just oozes on the pitch. In all areas of his game, he's got such yeah. control. He's got such good vision. His technical ability is outstanding. It's a player that I'm amazed Villa managed to get hold of when they did. Guardiola yeah. clearly rated him really highly, but struggled to maintain his work permit issues. And the fact that he stayed at Villa as long as he has, and he signed a new deal this year. That's that. That's the kind of person you want to build your midfield and your squad around. Him and Kamara, they're going to be an excellent double pivot for Aston Villa for a long time, we hope. Well, look at how long we were saying that under Steven Gerrard, the, the right midfielders were there. They were all, they're yeah. all great midfielders, but it's just finding the right blend, the right balance. And I think Emery's so good at not just finding the right balance, but it's situational, depending on the opposition as well. He plays yeah. the right midfield balance really, really well. And obviously, Jacob Ramsey he played brilliantly too. He scored yeah. a great goal. So there's so many positives to take from that midfield. It's kind of important to sort of state how important midfield balance is for all the teams that are performing well this season. Villa are no exception. And I think that's, for me, the biggest contrast between the two teams is that engine room. Villa's is so much better than Tottenham's and the energy oh. and work rate from Tottenham just wasn't there. And that's probably indicative of the season they're having. But you can tell how energetic and positive Aston Villa are at the moment. They're riding the crest of a wave, despite a couple of really tricky results lately as well. Yeah. Um, that's kind of a, a shame for Villa fans because what could have been if they'd have sort of maintained that form throughout? There are so many little fine margins. Yeah, that loss to Wolves is going to feel huge at the end of the season. Yeah. The draw to Brentford. Losing to Man United, you can understand that's that's fair enough that happens. But uh, it's so frustrating. It's, again, we're back to that same conversation we just had with Arsenal and Brighton, where at the end of the season, can you be disappointed with anything that happened? Because we looked like we were in a relegation battle earlier in the season. We never should have been there. That's the thing that all Villa fans know, that that was a false position anyway. So it is easier to have higher expectations now. But I don't know what I'll feel really satisfied with at the end of the season. If we finished eighth and missed out on European football, I am going to be gutted. Particularly if it's by goal difference to Spurs. Because that penalty was a joke. And I feel like... I love Harry Kane. I think he's a phenomenal footballer. He's done so much for the England national team where I've really been able to get behind him. But he does this. We know he does this. And it doesn't seem to ever get mentioned. He dives. As soon as it happens, Martinez is going to the ref going, he should be sent off here. That should be a second yellow for simulation. And it was. If you watch him go through, he trips on his own ankle. Both feet are already off the ground before he gets anywhere near Martinez he initiates contact with him and it's smart you could say it's smart he's won the penalty mm. it's it's deceiving the referee he's not because well because it's Harry Kane and because he's English it's it's classed as yeah. being smart it's classed as inviting commitment from the goalkeeper but yeah if there's no contact at all I mean we were talking about the contrast between the game between these two teams was it last season when mm. there was a clear penalty from Loris on was it Ollie Watkins was denied Watkins. with clear contact and this was almost a mirror mirror image but without any contact whatsoever double <laughs> standards or something it's mad isn't it this one that one was a joke because he literally takes both of Watkins legs and the thing is all right, we've gone on to win the game. But at that point, we were level on goal difference with Spurs. That's huge. That one goal is a two-goal swing in goal difference, obviously. And that could be everything at the end of the season. If that costs us a European place, there'll be plenty of neutrals that are stood going, well, it's karma for the the ghost goal that relegated, I think it was Bournemouth a few seasons ago. Do you remember that? No one's remembering that, mate, honestly. Oh, mate, Bournemouth fans. Trust me, people remember that. Villa get beaten with that stick very, very often when Nyland caught the ball and it went 
clearly went in and we got away with one. And we stayed up that season based on that goal, really. So maybe mm. it's karma. I don't know. It's I, I will be frustrated. I think particularly when you look at Villa's plans for the summer, some of the names that are being lined up already, if we get European football and can secure some of the people that are being talked about, I'm talking about the likes of Ferran Torres, Paul Torres, Marco yeah. Asensio. That's that's really kicking us on to the next level now, isn't it? And and that's what Villa want to do. I yeah. think with the project we have, the manager we have, the backing the board will give us, we can still attract those kinds of players, even if we do finish eighth. But it'll be much harder. <laughs> I don't think anyone's coming to Villa for Europa Conference League football necessarily. But it, does, it no. is a nice little sweetener. But I think... There's clear progress at a club that is establishing itself as one that's going to be competing down the line. So if they're going to attract any big names, it will be with a view to selling that project to them. And I think the way they're finishing this season, hopefully it continues and they do finish strongly to kind of attract that calibre of player. But I'm going to Mm. press you now for your predictions on where you think this European race is going to go because it's looking so tight, isn't it? Even from Liverpool in fifth down to Brighton, who are currently occupying, um, is it ninth place or eighth place rather? So between those places, how do you expect Mm. it to pan out then? Spurs, I'm guessing you think will slide, but you just don't know, do you? Spurs have got West Ham and Leeds. So who knows? Mm. Because, no, not West Ham and Leeds. So that's wrong. I think Leeds have got West Ham and Spurs rather than the other way around. I can't remember who Spurs is the next game. They're yet. definitely finishing with Leeds though. And I, I've Leeds actually said that's a tricky Leeds. game for them because Leeds are fighting for their lives and it's Sam Allardyce. So you don't know I'd how that's going to play out. i Sam Allardyce, but I'll be begging for a favour from him on the last day of the season. <laughs> if, if Leeds beat Spurs and help Villa qualify for Europe, oh. I'll wear a Sam Allardyce t-shirt on the podcast. I'd, oh, I'd be, yes. I'll, I'll be very to ready to support him. No, it's um, it's tough. Villa's next two games are Liverpool and Brighton. So it's kind of in our hands to a degree. I have a sneaking suspicion we might just miss out. I really want us to be able to drag Spurs into it. But those two games that Villa have got, are Villa going to get, how many points mm-hmm. are we going to get from, from Liverpool and Brighton? It's really hard. That last game of the season, it's it's all or nothing. If we can beat Brighton on that game, then I think we'll we'll clinch it and we'll overtake Spurs. But I was kind of hoping we were going to overtake them this weekend, really. If we'd picked yeah. up a point even against Wolves, we were sorted. It's so frustrating. But yeah, uh, let me be optimistic. Yeah, we'll finish seventh, Spurs finish eighth, <laughs> Liverpool and Brighton will finish fifth and sixth in some sort of order. Yeah, it's just unfortunate that uh, Brighton are in such good form, isn't it? And like you say, a blockbuster I, I final game. I not believe it. Yeah, they, they lose 5 one Everton and they beat Arsenal 3-0 at the Emirates. I thought, great, of course. But great where is due, though, yeah. Too going to say yeah. it's incredible from them um yeah. obviously um there's a lot going on in the premier league right now and i think i'm going to touch on tottenham's former manager while we've been talking talking to, about tottenham which is mauricio pochettino potentially going to chelsea looks mm-hmm. like it's almost confirmed there's been yeah. definitely a lot of talk um for people in the know that it, it's pretty much done um pochettino he's he's got obviously premier league pedigree but he's not Felt the love lately, has he? As PSG manager, since he left, he's had an extended break because I think he needed that after that experience. Yeah. Um, but at Tottenham, he established himself and Southampton as well as a manager who really coached players, first of all, created a team, created a squad, created a really good atmosphere and worked miracles with with a budget really as well. Not that he'll have a small budget at Chelsea. However, the players he's got do need the armour on their shoulder, that kind of coaching element and that kind of almost father figure. Do you think Pochettino is a smart move for Chelsea? And do you think Chelsea is a smart move for Pochettino, if that's the case? I, I'm struggling to work it out because you are right. Pochettino's credit in the bank comes from him being such a good coach, particularly of young players. Yeah. Would we not have said exactly the same thing about Graham Potter? Now, all right, Pochettino has probably proved it for slightly longer at more of an elite level. But the job at PSG, is that anything like the job at Chelsea? Really? No, he's got nothing to compete with there. The only similarity is, seems to be endless amounts of money. And I don't mm. I don't know where Pochettino fits in at Chelsea because in theory, it makes sense. They've signed a lot of young players with really high ceilings and he's shown before that he can help players get to that ceiling. Look at someone like Deli Alley and where his career has gone since Pochettino and him parted company. Mm-hmm. But are Chelsea going to give him the time to develop players? Because they didn't give Potter that time. 
So it seems like a weird step. I, I don't know what Chelsea want to do. So I don't think Chelsea know what Chelsea want to do. So it's really hard to identify who the right managerial candidate yeah. was. They clearly have missed out on a few targets. It, it seemed like they were talking to Luis Enrique and that fell through. A very different manager to Pochettino. It felt like they were talking to Nagelsmann and that didn't work out. So I don't know is the honest answer. All I do know is it's a huge job. Pochettino will have a great deal on his plate. I don't know how much money he'll have to spend in the summer because they've spent so much already rebuilding that squad. They've absolutely got to shift some players. Yeah. And I look at that squad now and think, who are the players that really benefit from Pochettino's appointment in particular? And that's that's tricky to identify. True. But I think I think it's probably better for Pochettino than it is for Chelsea. Purely because I think Pochettino is trying to rebuild somewhat his reputation. And I think with Chelsea, he'll have a really good chance to do what he does best. Now, the difference between him and Potter is that Graham Potter, they could kind of expected there to be some kind of lull, I think, once Potter got installed as manager. But to go to where they went to, as opposed to being still in the top six, was such a drop-off. I don't think Chelsea and Todd Bowley quite expected that. With Pochettino, I think Chelsea will be at the very least a top six team because their squad and their team is so much better than than where they are. And it's just a chance for him to get them performing at a bare minimum level of that top six for him to be, I don't know, given a a little bit more respite, I think. I think he'll do that quite easily. There's a lot of people talking about Chelsea being title contenders next season. No, no. Very premature. No, but... I think they do you know that with the right amount of coaching with the players they've got, because as you say, they're not going to be able to spend a huge amount of money in the summer. There are positions they need to, to identify quickly and obviously striker being one of them. Pochettino is the right person to, to be that coach. And I think there's a lot of players needing some reassurance at the minute that they're good enough to do that because they're doubting themselves. And they've just had a spell under Frank Lampard and, and he's not he's not the most like reassuring coach, is he? I imagine it's a great arm around the shoulders, a big brother type figure. But he's not... He well, that's what his reputation is built upon, right? But I think uh, Pochettino has got that disciplinary inside of him as well. I think he's proven that. He's not afraid to kind of crack the whip a little bit if things aren't falling into line. Uh, he couldn't do that at PSG. He needs a level of autonomy that I think he'll probably get more at Chelsea. So for him, I feel like it's a good move. For Chelsea, I'm not so sure because he, they do still feel like they're trying to invest in some kind of project. And I don't know if they've got the patience for it. So it's a weird conundrum for them, isn't it? Devil's advocate. I don't know how I feel about the appointments. I'm not necessarily saying that I disagree with you, but would you want to rely on Todd Bowley's Chelsea to rebuild your <laughs> reputation right now? I, I wouldn't. I, just, I think Lampard's learned that the hard way. I think Potter's seen his reputation take a bit of a hit from that. I'm, I'm not sure that it's a smart move from Pochettino's point of view in that sense. Mm. And he struggled at PSG to manage a dressing room full of characters. He's not just got a dressing room full of characters at Chelsea. The canteen's full of the ones that can't fit in the dressing room. The car park doesn't have (laughs) any spare spaces. There's more players there than he'll be able to manage. Absolutely. Is he the sort of person that can go in there and clear a squad out? I I don't know. I've never seen enough from Pochettino to think that he would be able to do that. He is friendly. He is a, a good developer. Is that what Chelsea need right now? Or do they need someone to be a bit more ruthless? Do they need, let's be honest, Thomas Tuchel? Yes, of course they do. Yeah, I look at that Chelsea squad, and for all the investment that they've put in, you say that it's a top six squad. Is it? <laughs> I, I I don't know. I don't think either goalkeeper is in the top six goalkeepers in the league right now. Mendy again was was poor against Forest. Kepa's had a decent season, but I think I could think of six goalkeepers in the Premier League better than better than him. True. I think defensively. Koulibaly's not lived up to what we thought he would. Kukurea seems like a massive spank of money. Mm. All right, they've got Chilwell and James. They can't keep themselves fit. Thiago Silva's your age, sorry. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know how good that defence is. Is that a top six defence, really? I know I'm missing yeah. Fafana and, uh, and Bally Bally Shiley Shiley. as well. Yeah, it's a young, but, talented team, and I think they've they've got potential. And I think as a as a future starting eleven, you can see it taking shape. And obviously, Mudrick's not had. A fair shake, really. He's been thrown right into it. Um, Madueke's shown signs, hasn't Madueke's he, in recent great. weeks? So yeah. there's a few players there that I can see performing. You're right, though. They've got to trim That's a lot a of players. 
Yeah. That's that's a hope that all of those young players reach their ceilings. They're bought in mm. on potential, and that's great if you can trust your scouting network to be consistent. Look at Brighton, they've done that. But the difference is the risk for Brighton doing it compared to yeah. the way Chelsea have done it is bizarre. You're like you have to not you specifically, but you have to assume that all of those players are worth the money that Chelsea paid for them to consider them a top six team. And I'm not sure that that's true. Enzo Fernandez looks fantastic. Short of that, Madueke as well. I really like Madueke and I think we've seen enough of him, not just here, but in in Holland as well, to say that he will be a phenomenal player. Yeah. The rest of their transfer business seems so scattergun. They've got another right back coming in in the summer in Gusto. Where does he fit in when you've got Rhys James? And Kunku is a big one. And that probably addresses some of their attacking problems because he is a phenomenal player. But then there's João Felix. Do you keep him? Do you have to move on from players like Kovacic and Kante and start again? It's it's a big job. I'm not sure that Pochettino has much of a proof that that's the right thing for him. I'll be honest. But I don't know who would be the right person to take over at Chelsea yeah. right now other than someone who knows something about football being the owner. That, that, that seems where the biggest change needs to happen. I'm sure Chelsea fans would agree. Yeah. It's strange when you talk about Chelsea and Thomas Tuchel being their coach, it feels like a season ago. And there's so many aspects of this yeah. Premier League season where it feels like two seasons in one. One yeah. of those things is Southampton season as well. I forget, now that they're relegated, I think back and I forget that Ralph Hasenhutl was in charge. Because so much yeah. has changed with Southampton as well amongst so many other teams. So that brings us next on to Southampton, really. Yeah, confirmed as being relegated from the Premier League. It's been a, about eight or nine teams that have been up for relegation for a few months now, it feels like. This is the first one that's been confirmed. The first team to fall adrift as well. They've yeah. kind of gone off the boil, haven't they, completely in recent weeks. But nonetheless, yeah. still really sad to see Southampton, Southampton to go down after 11 years in the Premier League, especially because their story of getting there in the first place was so heroic almost, going down to League One, they're coming all the way back up again with the likes of Ricky Lambert. Ricky you know, Lambert it, feels, yeah. it feels like a lifetime ago, but they were popular because of how they got back into the Premier League. And they yeah. almost became the Brentford and the Brighton of their day, where they established yeah. themselves as a really sustainable team, selling on star names like Sadio Mane as well. So they've had some very good players over the years. Their investment this year has been not quite as prolific as it usually is in a good way. They've signed a lot of players, but very, very young players. Has yeah. that been there on doing do you think too many players too inexperienced too soon it seemed like they were preparing for the championship at the start of the season if we're totally honest they didn't really know what their approach was now don't get me wrong some of the young players they've signed do look really quality Mm. and will go on to have fantastic careers at higher levels than Southampton if we're honest yeah like Lavia for example he, he just looks he looks brilliant and and it's a surprise to see him potentially having a relegation on his CV already. But they put so much pressure on a very young side being led by experience of players who aren't really cut out for this level with a couple of exceptions, maybe. And then they made weird coaching decisions where Harsen Hootle, things weren't going well under him. And it's been an odd spell for him at Southampton. You can understand why they thought they maybe needed to move on. Do I think Southampton would be in a better position now if they'd stuck with him? Probably. Nathan Jones was a terrible appointment. They didn't mm. solve that problem quickly either. No. They didn't They didn't identify someone that would keep them in. They didn't go for a Dice or a Sam Allardyce, as much as I'm loath <laughs> to say it. it. It just seemed to be like, okay, we've given up. We've kind of resigned yeah. to the fact that we're going to go down now and we'll look to rebuild in the, in the summer. But what does a rebuild for this Southampton squad look like? Because... Yeah there are a lot of players that will get picked off. You can't, there's a lot of those players will not be in the championship next season. Let's be honest. No, Carl, I mean, they've got some, some fantastic players on there. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Bella Kochap's a really highly rated defender He'll as well. Go. Isn't he? Yeah. Aribo probably. Keleta Carr as well. These are all quite recent yeah. signings as well. All been very impressive in spells, but between yeah. them, how many Premier League appearances have they got? Like zero. I don't think any of them have played in the Premier League or had any appearances or experience. And when you're fighting relegation, you need to win a dogfight and they're just not built for that. I do think the changes of coach have been really telling because I think they've used 32 players in the Premier League this season, which is behind Nottingham Forest who have used 33. (laughs) So they've used a lot of players, had a lot of uncertainty, very unsettled start at 11 and a lot of inexperience as well. So it's kind of a recipe for relegation really, I think. You've been relying on James Ward-Prowse scoring free kicks 
all season. And that, that that's not a game plan or a tactic. I don't know how Southampton play football still. After all season, I don't really know what how you identify Southampton's style. And all right, that's probably difficult when you've had three coaches. But yeah. it's, it is a shame. You're right. When you consider where Southampton were, they were knocking on the door of Europe for a yeah. while. And that squad was brilliant. Graziano Pele was there. <laughs> they had Tadic, obviously doing great things with Ajax since then. Mane, like you mentioned, Lalana, Lambert, Rodriguez. Van Dijk and Klein, remember that? Shaw even. It was a yeah. great squad. And it seemed like every time they had to recycle it's a bit different to Brighton when Brighton have sold someone big they've managed to reinvest that money really well and Southampton seemed like they were trying to do that and then this summer they just did too much yeah they they just didn't know where to go with it and yeah I don't know at the start of the season did I think Southampton would go down I probably thought they'd have a bad season but there'd be three teams worse than them and they've comfortably been the worst team in the league all season hence why they're the first first to go really it's it's interesting I just wonder of that squad now, who's in the Premier League next year? Are we, are we in agreement that Walker Peters will stay yeah. somewhere? Surely yeah, he's yeah. good. He's a good player. Ward Price will get a move. Do you think? I think he might yeah. do like a Mark Noble and stick around and be the heartbeat no, of Southampton no, to get them back. No, the thing is, he's an England international, so that already adds money to his 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 price tag and yeah. his reputation. He's a set-piece specialist that a lot of teams will lack. There's plenty of teams in the Premier League that are missing a midfielder. I actually think Will Price is really overrated. I think he's really good from a set-piece. But Villa have been linked with him a few times over the last couple of years, and I'd stay well away from him. I don't think he's anywhere near good enough for our midfield. But I've got this sneaking feeling that either Spurs or maybe even Liverpool will come yeah, in for him. I agree. Um, Look at Liverpool. They signed Andy Robertson when he got relegated. Mm-hmm. They signed Wayne Alden when he got relegated and turned them into decent players. I wouldn't be surprised if they were looking in that market. He'll he'll stay somewhere and Lavia will probably get a move. The rest of them, I don't know. No, there's a, there's a few kind of players that need a season in the championship really to, to grow and mature. A lot of yeah. them are still kind of 20 to 25. You know, it's very raw. So they'll be battle hardened come the end of it. If they can bounce back straight away and get promoted in, in one season, I think they could establish themselves again as a Premier League team. But for now, absolutely. farewell Southampton. It's been a, a long stretch, 11 years, but uh, yeah, new blood to, what- to enter. To be fair to them, look what this young Sunderland side was able to do in the championship yeah. this season. So may- maybe it is the right league for them to be in for now. And actually, they'll get a parachute payment. They'll be able yeah. to reinvest some of that. They'll sell on some of their higher earners. It it might not be the worst thing for a club like Southampton. There's some clubs that you look at and think if they go down, that'll be the end of them and it'll be a real problem and a real struggle for them to get back up. I don't know if I think that about Southampton. I actually think that, yeah, they probably are quite well equipped to reinvest and go again next season. But they need to make some correct decisions quickly. They need to decide who's going to be their manager next season, for example. Who's an obvious candidate to take over at Southampton in the Championship? I'm not sure there is one. No. Um, Well, we're settling a few things in the Premier League and in the men's game now towards the end of the season. Uh, Another thing that was settled in the women's game was the FA Cup final. As uh, Chelsea beat Manchester United 1-0, I was lucky enough to be in attendance at Wembley, took my daughters to go and see a historic moment for Manchester United ladies team who have never appeared in this competition's final before. Um, So we were hoping to witness a big moment of history and see them lift the the trophy. But this is Chelsea, isn't it? Chelsea are such a formidable force in the women's game. And it was a very tight game and a game of small margins, wasn't it? And the fact that it was televised with 77,000 fans in attendance made it feel like such a massive occasion. And I can verify being there, it felt as big as it looked on telly, probably more so. So yeah, Chelsea are winners of the FA Cup again, the third time in a row. row, That girl, Sam Kerr, in the right place at the right time. But it wasn't always straightforward for Chelsea, was it? United made it very difficult and made spectacle of it for most of the game, I would say. Particularly in the first half, yeah, Man United really had had a good go of it. But this is what this Chelsea side does. Mm. They've got one of the most elite players in women's history, in Sam Kerr. And as soon as they brought Kerr in you knew that it was going to help take them to that next stage. They were already an incredibly successful team in the British game, but she's just so clinical. She was she was outstanding in this game. I think she she made Man United defenders really worried. There was a chance for her to get an assist quite late on as well, where she put the ball through her legs and 
move forward, put that great ball across the box as well. Chelsea could have been out of sight in that second half, I've got to say. Yeah. The first half, I thought, was pretty level. But that's what quality gets you. They've got probably the most elite manager in, in, in British women's football in, in Emma Hayes, who, who knows how to win this competition. It's a great squad. Someone like Lauren James, who's come from United and it's just kicked on to the next level at Chelsea yeah. as well. It is a shame. But United have had a phenomenal season again. Whatever happens, they, they've got to take it back to the WSL now and try and hold on to that place at top spot. But it's going to be hard with Chelsea breathing down their necks as they saw this weekend, right? Oh, yeah. It would be a, a, a really sort of tense end to the season in the WSL. And I can only hope that United bounce back quickly from this disappointment because to get to Wembley and to play in a spectacle like that was amazing. But obviously yeah. to win it would have been fantastic. And psychologically, I do hope that it's not crushed them too much to get so close, but feel so far away from from a trophy. But yeah, mm. in such a short space of time, they've progressed so much. And so many players can hold their heads up high, I think, not just from this game, but for the season generally. Um, Ella Toon was has been great all season. Alessia Russo um, looked a bit isolated in this game, but she's got so much talent and she's such a clever player. Um, and I just think they've got so much potential to to do well in this season. And I, I do hope that the, the WSL doesn't just fade out to be a Chelsea procession now. I really do. It's difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, United are on top at the moment, but Chelsea have got a game in hand. They potentially will yeah. go two points clear if they win that game in hand, as yeah. many expect them to. If United finish second, it's a bit like an hostile situation in the men's game, isn't it? Would they be disappointed with it? I think so. I think they've got so close to glory in both competitions that it's something they can definitely learn and grow from. But I can't help but think they'd be gutted. Yeah, you always are, aren't you, when you when you come that close? And it'd be interesting to see what United do in, in the summer as well. Because there was talk of a, a massive bid for Russo in January, wasn't there, yeah. as well? So whether they hold on to the players that they've started to, to grow together and whether they really look at this as an opportunity to kick on. Because let's be honest, Manchester United as a football club kind of neglected the, the, the women's team for far too long. And it's really nice to see them grow now. And And that's what the women's game needs, high-profile teams that are willing to invest and kick on and bring in that fan love. I mean, for you being able to take your daughters to it, that's such a wonderful experience for for you to to see the growth of that side of the game massively. And United should be a big part of that. So although it might feel frustrating to finish runners-up to Chelsea twice, there are are plenty of good teams that are going to finish second to a team like Chelsea with the quality that they've got. One thing... one. Thing that I really am looking forward to for the uh, end of the WSL, though, is uh, I don't know. I know United are on top of the the league table, but do you know who's uh, top of the Golden Boot race at the moment? Quite some way ahead as well, isn't it? Rachel Daly. Ra- deserves Rachel it. Daly is yeah. so good, man. So, so brilliant to watch. Well, that's another thing for me. Sam Kerr's having a great season, isn't she? And this goal in the final will be like a, a real moment for her. But she loves it. Big she, I think she got uh, player of the season, didn't she, in the WSL? Well, I think Rachel Daly must feel really aggrieved to not have won that herself. <laughs> There's a couple of Villa players that can feel yeah. aggrieved. Kendra Daly as well has had a yeah. phenomenal season. The fact that Villa are where they are is ridiculous. But yeah, I, I have to get that mentioned. In. I know we're talking about the FA Cup, but Rachel Daly for the Golden Boot. I can't wait to see that, that come true. Uh, for the match itself, anyway, Chelsea. The difference between Chelsea and United, from my perspective, and I think many others as well, was... The experience really showed in the second half of a team that's mm. used to winning versus a team yeah. that's not been in this position before. It was like an unknown territory for United, definitely. And Depth they well, they right? were so they were so enthusiastic in the first half. And obviously the goal was disallowed within twenty something seconds yeah. for being offside. Again, very fine margins. Tight. Really, really tight. tight. Yeah. And that energy continued throughout the first half. I thought defensively they kept it really solid at the back as well. And yeah. Maya Letizia is is fantastic. She's having a great season. Great they dealt season. with they dealt with Sam Kerr well. And so mm-hmm. when they brought Penilla Harder on in the second half, you just knew it was going to stretch the play, and it really did. Yeah. And Chelsea with Kerr and Harder at front are a different proposition altogether. It's just a world class front line. And for everything United did, they could no longer do that in the second half when Harder was there. Did you see yeah. that front line? as being the best in the world at the moment. I know there's a lot of very formidable women's teams, but Chelsea look amongst there, amongst the best, don't they, with that forward line especially? Yeah, absolutely. I think the connection between the two of them as well, like when you saw the ball in for for Kerr's goal, that pass was just outstanding. And for a striker of Sam Kerr's quality, you put a ball on the plate like Harder did in that that instance and you're going to lap it up all day. So Mm. yeah, it's it's fantastic for them. They'll be disappointed at the fact that they're not going for the Champions League this year. Yeah, but yeah. domestically, 
it definitely doesn't get much better than Chelsea's front line. I mean, the way that Barcelona are, you have to you have to wonder whether Chelsea have enough to compete with them long term. But yeah, right now, look, Villa got knocked out of the FA Cup to, to Chelsea. You you've suffered it this weekend as well with United. You can't be too aggrieved by it though, can you, when you see the quality they've got on that pitch and, and like you mm. say, the depth they've got to bring harder off the bench even as well. That, that that's just ridiculous, isn't it? It it yeah. worked really well for them. A uh, really monumental moment for the women's game. And I feel like we're saying that on a regular occasion now, which is really yeah. encouraging. It's been um, a successful season, absolutely. Definitely. And I think the attendances are growing across all the clubs as well, which is great to see. So, yeah, interesting to see how it plays out for the final stretch. Um, I'm going to finish World the Cup. pod on, yeah, the World Cup, of course, yeah. Um, I'm going to finish the pod on a topic... Um, just to round off the whole Premier League conversation with Man City, because we talked about them very little, really, because they're kind of like a procession to the title, it feels like. Mm-hmm. But they are probably going to lose Ilke Gundogan this this summer. Um, and we've talked about it before, haven't we? How mm-hmm. much of an influence he is for this team, more so in recent weeks, it feels like. Yeah. Why would they let him go if they were going to let him go? Do you think it'd be his decision or City's? And where do you think he'd go next? I think it would have to be his. The way that Guardiola talks, he knows how important Gundogan is to this team. And it's rare that he lets a player go when they are kind of still at the peak of their powers. And Gundogan's showing, particularly at the tail end of this season, what an important player he is. He's about to captain Man City to the title, potentially a treble, which is just what an outstanding achievement. And yeah. if you look at someone like Fernandinho, who captained the, that Man City side so successfully, it was only very late in his career that he was allowed to move on when it really seemed like his job was finished there. I'm not sure Gundogan's job is finished at Man City. He could definitely still be there next season and start games comfortably. He's one of the best centre midfielders in the league. And I think he's, it seems weird to say of Manchester City's captain, I still think he's quite underrated. The goal, his first goal at the weekend was so good. Like the instinct he has to get the ball up where it is, that flick and the control he had on it. Unbelievable. Two goals and assist. And it's always at these vital moments, isn't it? He just, yeah. he's, such a, he's such a great player for that squad that, all right, Barcelona might come knocking, but would you rather be at Barcelona than Man City right now? Mm. I also look at Barcelona's midfield and when they've got the likes of Gavi and, and Pedri who are going to be there really long term. Okay, Busquets is moving on so that does open a space up a little bit. But yeah, yeah, I don't know. I just, I'd be really surprised if, if Gundogan left Man City to be honest. But I think maybe, maybe that's where well, he's at in his career. You say he's underrated, but I don't think he's underrated by Pep Guardiola. That's the thing. No. He's, he's absolutely a player in the mould of what he looks for. And he, he's just got this professionalism and this willingness to listen to instructions that he just executes perfectly. And Pep mm. needs that. He needs players that, that take on advice, take on board direction. And he plays yeah. his part brilliantly. And he's been, in the last few weeks, just a complete midfielder, hasn't he? He's popped yeah. up literally everywhere across that forward line with goals and assists and probably in the best form of his Man City career, without a doubt. So if he was well, going to leave... Spell, <clears throat> he had that spell last season as well, didn't he? After January, yeah. where he was the one just scoring all the goals for Man City. And he seems like he's ready to do that again. What's that, four in two games? Yeah, unreal. Right at the tail end of the season, when Man City weren't able to necessarily put out their strongest lineup this weekend, with Real Madrid in mind. Doesn't matter. No. The way that squad is, it just doesn't matter. When I say he's underrated, yeah, you're right. Guardiola definitely recognised him, which is why I'd be so surprised to see him go on a free. But I do mm. feel like maybe the British media don't quite recognise him for how good he is. Agreed, it's, yeah. I think we'll probably find out, won't we? When we're looking at teams of the season, we'll see how many people include Gondwan in their team of the season. In terms of journalists, I don't think it'll be that many. And the other thing is, I don't know who replaces Gundogan in that Man City side in the summer. If they need to move on from him, Calvin Phillips is a really different kind of player. Maybe you could drop Foden into midfield, but I I don't think Guardiola would want to do that with him at this stage in his career. So they'd have to go and buy someone. Bellingham looked like a great replacement, Mm -hmm. but that seems like it's done for him to go to Madrid. So I don't know why you'd let Gundogan go. Is there anyone better on the market that Man City could go out and realistically get in the summer? No, absolutely not. I think he, if they've got any sense, then City would keep him at least until they've found a more viable alternative. But as you yeah. say, to replace Gundogan isn't just about his skills. It's about him as a player and his, his leadership yeah. qualities are fantastic absolutely. as well. So 
yeah, City have got a tough uh, a tough one on their hands to either hold onto him or replace him either way. But how do you see City's season panning out now? They've got Real Madrid obviously still to play. I think if they get past Madrid, it's a treble almost guaranteed, isn't it? And as a United fan who's still yeah, got to play Madrid. City in the FA Cup, yeah. I can't see them stopping them in this form. You never want to write Real Madrid off, and no. it seems silly to ever predict against Real Madrid, but Man City at the Etihad right now. Ugh. Yeah, I, I think they're probably going to win all three. I'll be honest. What would be your reaction to that as well, apart from a collective like shrug and a sigh? I mean, yeah, do neutral football fans feel like mesmerised by Man City as much as, as like journalists do? Because, I mean, they play brilliant stuff, but I feel like it's always an asterisk against their name, isn't it? Yeah, almost? yeah that's what I was going to say. You have to appreciate them on a footballing level because it's so impressive to watch mm. them. Like, I watched the game at the weekend and again, they didn't really have to do too much, but they... J- it, it looks like they're playing a different sport sometimes, the way that other teams just can't get close to them. But I don't know. I think of it in a few ways as a neutral. The first is we look at like the German league and we kind of write it off and go, oh, yeah, Bayern Munich just win it every year. And then Dortmund might slip in every now and again. Yeah. That's, that's what the Premier League's becoming with Man City, which is really disappointing. It just feels slightly more competitive at times, but it's not, let's be honest. Yeah. And the other thing is... How do you feel about Man City lifting a trophy when there's over a hundred cases of financial irregularity against their name at the moment that's still being looked into? Yeah. It's that's the sad part of football though, isn't it? We've got to deal with them doing that. We've got to think about Newcastle and whether we can celebrate their achievements getting into the top four when we know how they're funded. We're looking at Man United potentially being bought out as well mm. in a similar way. PSG's fans revolting against the club forgetting where their money comes from it's it's sad isn't it but yeah it would be nice it for me the romantic thing is for Arsenal to have taken the league Man United to win the FA Cup which doesn't really seem that romantic but it's just the lesser of two evils and then one of the Milan <laughs> clubs to lift the Champions League that would be amazing but let's be honest City are gonna win all three aren't they <laughs> Do you know what? I think that's why I, I've really found value in going to watch the uh, FA Cup final, the women's FA Cup final, because it felt like football at more of a sort of a hearty level, at more of a, yeah. a, a, a spiritual level, something that you could enjoy, um, almost guilt-free. Oh, you say that. Man City is still successful in the women's game, aren't they, these days? I know, but they've got projects all over the place with teams all over the place, haven't yeah. they? So that's that's the way their infrastructure works at the minute. Yeah. But um, we'll see. Real Madrid is uh, still Real Madrid and they could... Yeah, may very well... much in the tie. Absolutely, yeah. It's on a, on a knife edge, definitely. So don't write them off. Anyway, next time on the podcast, please rejoin us where we talk about that. And there will no doubt be more things confirmed in the Premier League as well. So there'll be all that to talk about. But while you are listening, uh, please hop over to YouTube if you can um, or any of our socials at Football Diary UK. And hit follow, hit like, hit subscribe and continue our growth because uh, we're heading in a good direction. It'd be good to have you you guys on board as well. Thank you for joining me, Miles. I'll speak to you soon, mate. Anytime, man.